Amen. I'm going to ask you to listen as carefully as you can to these words by the Apostle Paul that he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. He wrote, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Those words were written to the most carnal, fleshly church in all of the New Testament, the church at Corinth. The Corinthians had a really bad habit of making decisions based primarily on what was most gratifying and satisfying to their flesh. That's how they navigated through life. So Paul writes these words to them, reminding them that they are not their own, that they are God's, that God had purchased them rightly through, his, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because they are now his own, which was evidenced by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within them, now they were to no longer live as servants of the flesh, serving their flesh, but now they are to live as servants unto God. Now, this, this kind of dichotomy, these, these distinctions between these two things, these ideas of being a servant of the flesh and being a servant of God, are on full display amongst two of the main characters in 1 Samuel, King Saul and King David. Uh, King, both of these guys are kings of Israel, but they could not have been any more different. See, King Saul was, was an example of what it means to be a servant of the flesh. He was willing to obey God, but only as it seemed or deemed uh, advantageous to him. But now, whenever God commanded him to be able to do something that would make him inconvenience, that would make him uncomfortable, or, or, or call him to be able to sacrifice, or call him into the midst of difficulties, he just jettisoned his, obe- dis- his obedience altogether. Paul, or excuse me, um, um, David was completely the different. He was a man, as the scriptures say, as we read last week in 1 Samuel 16, he was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he really exemplifies what it means to be the servant of God, because he was willing to be obedient whether it was advantageous to him or not, whether it was convenient or not, whether it was means that things were going to go better for him temporarily or not, whether people were against him or not, he just wanted to obey. That's what a servant of God looks like. Now, I don't know about you, and if some of you are like me, whether you want to admit it or not, some of you are like me in this, is that I, I don't need any more examples of what it looks like to live as a servant of the flesh. I don't need to see any more examples of that. I see it every day, and please understand what I'm saying. I don't mean that I see it outward or outside of me. I do. I'm saying that I see enough of it inwardly every day, that I struggle within myself every day to not be a servant of my own flesh, to be able to make decisions on a daily basis just based on what I think is best for me and what will bring me most comfort and security. I struggle with being that servant of God. And so I, if you're like me in some aspect, I desperately need more true examples of what it means and what it looks like to be a servant of God. And I believe that's what we have in the life of David this morning. So what I want to do is I just want to show you two characteristics, two characteristics of what it looks like to be a true servant of God this morning. Having been bought with the price of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, evidenced by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in us, what does it look like to be a servant of God? I think there are two things. I think first of all, 
A life lived as a servant unto God is first and foremost concern for God's honor. Concern for God's honor. Now, in the beginning of this chapter, 17 and verse 1, we really are just kind of given the background. We see that there are, we, we find ourselves in the midst of a military skirmish or uh, a kind of a battle type scenario between the Philistines and uh, God's people, the Israelites. On one mountain, you have the Philistines. On the other mountain, you have the Israelites and you have King Saul leading them. And in the middle of these two mountains, there's a valley that runs between these two things. And in the midst of this valley, down in the valley, there is a terrifying sight. And there is literally a giant of a man standing there facing the armies of Israel. And in verse 4 through 7, by the way, I'm going to have to really sum up a lot. This, this chapter is immensely long, so you'll forgive me when I sum up some of this, right? And so in first, verses 4 through 7, we see uh, kind of this uh, description of this giant, and we find out that he's uh, translating into today's height and everything. He's about nine foot six, all right? So about three times as large as your pastor, all right? Um, and only half the size of Matt Leinbach. And so He's big, he's tall, he's ginormous. This man is clad with iron from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. In fact, the iron itself that he's wearing, the the armor that he's wearing, uh, weighs about 126 pounds. He's got a massive sword, a massive spear. The spear, just the, the head of the spear alone, weighs between 15 and 16 pounds by itself. This is a monster of a man. And this would have been a terrifying sight, even to the bravest of the soldiers in the army of the Israelites. But what was even more frightening was that this giant actually had a voice and he actually spoke. And when he spoke, he began to speak this really frightening challenge. If you pick up with me in verse 8, the Bible says that he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. He says, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are the servants of Saul? In other words, he says, hey, listen, what are we doing here? He's been sitting here for a while. For 40 days, he comes out and does the same exact spiel we find in the course of the story. And basically, he goes, what are we doing here? We're here to fight. He goes, that's why we've lined up with these two enemies, one on two, you know, both on these different mountains. You're Israelites. We're Philistines. That's what we do. We fight. So what are you waiting for? Come on down, you bunch of chickens. You're all mama, right? And so he's doing whatever he can to get them to be able to come down. Notice what he says. He then gives the terms of the battle. He says, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. So what he's doing is he's basically saying, let's do a representative type of fighting, a representative type of battle. There's no need for all of us to get wounded and killed. Let's, let's just settle this uh, man on man. Uh, uh, I'm going to come out here and I'm going to represent this army. You get the biggest, baddest dude you can to come out and, and fight against me. And, and if I win, then you guys serve us. If you win, then we'll serve you. No big deal. Now, this is very rare. Try to research this a little bit. You know, I, I can't find this anywhere in the Bible where you have this representative type battle unless it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, right? And, and so, so usually it's one army, full-on blown war with the other army. And that's usually how they did battle, unless you're one of the Philistines and you have a ringer like Goliath, right? This makes complete sense. Why, why even risk the fact that we may not go home tonight? Why don't we just have him fight our battle for us so that we can almost but assure ourselves of a victory? 
And so this is a frightening sight, and it's a frightening challenge. But what's even more terrifying is this terrifying blasphemy that comes out of the mouth of this giant. If you, if you notice, um, the scriptures say this. He, he says in verse 10, he says, And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The key word in this entire chapter is the word defy. It's used some six times throughout the entire chapter, and it really gets to the root of what this whole chapter is about. Because the word defy is not just expressed about the Philistines defying the army of Israel, but here's the bigger point. Get this. It's about these unbelieving men defying a holy God. That's what the whole really book is about. It, 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 it is not. Now, look, I know that we've heard this story countless times. I know we've heard it preached more times than we can imagine. It's been alluded to more times than we can count. And we've, we've heard all kinds of messages from it. Messages like this, how you can face your giants. Anyone? When you heard this? Uh, maybe how you can weather a bully. I, that actually, a sermon that I've heard. Here's another sermon that I heard once is how to overcome low self-esteem. Not even sure how that works, Right? I, and, then, and then here's my favorite of all, true story, how to get ahead in life. If you know the story, decapitation, you get that. All right, some of you laugh tomorrow. But anyway, this is, this is where they are. But, but what is, is all that what this story is about? No, truthfully, when it all is said and done, this passage is really about the honor and the reputation of God and the willingness of God's people to uphold and to live in a way that upholds the honor and the reputation of that God. That's what this whole story is about. See, what we have is we have this guy coming, and he's mocking. Remember, everybody knows who Israel's God is. They let everybody know that they serve the one true God. Everybody around them thinks they're arrogant. Everybody else is, is worshiping these crazy gods. They say they are the representative of this one true God, and he's greater than any of them. This man comes out and defies and mocks their God. And what do they do? What do they do? Do they come out in battle? Do, do, do they get angry because they're mocking their God? No, the scriptures say in verse 11, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words, Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And later in the story, it says, when Goliath comes out again and does the same thing, most of them run and hide. And so get this, representatives of God, they were a nation that were supposed to exemplify for a lost and dying world what God was all about and to uphold his honor and reputation. But what are they concerned for? Their own necks, their own well-being, their own comfort. That's, what, that's what's on the preeminent aspect of their mind. All they care about is how well things are going to go for them. They just want to save their own neck. That's all they're worried about. And what they're doing is, in essence, they care nothing about God's honor. They care nothing about his reputation. But when David comes on the scene, he responds radically different. In verses 12 through 24, he comes to the scene. And the reason that he's there is to begin with is not even to come to the battle. He's delivering lunches. He's bringing bread and cheese sandwiches to his brothers and to the commanders. And he comes down to, 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 to there and he's like, hey, what's up with Gigantor out in the valley? 
And, and, and they begin to tell him. They're like, man, that dude's huge. Don't mess with him, man. Sword, big sword, big spear, big this, big that. And then this is what he did. He's challenged all of us. It was somebody, for, some one of us to be able to come out and battle him. And so frightening sight, they explain. Frightening challenge, they explain. And finally, they get to the point where they begin to explain this frightening um, uh, display of arrogance on his part where he begins to defy their God. And at this point, David becomes righteously angry. This is when he begins ticked off. It is, is the defiance of his God and the dishonoring of his God that drives him to action. By the way, this ought to be more how you and I are functioning. I know a lot of God's people and myself included that when somebody says something about us and we want to defend, right, our reputations. We want to go to battle. Oh, they said this about me. Now it's time to be able to fight. It's not time to fight when people say something about us or try to demean us. You know why? Because we're dead to the flesh. We're not to fight for the flesh and for our reputation. What should get us fired up is when the, 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 the name of God, the glory of God, the honor of God is being demeaned. And this is what David gets. He gets this and he gets completely fired up. And why does he do it? Because he's not a servant of the flesh who's only looking after his own comfort. He is a servant of God because he's concerned for God's honor and his reputation. Did you know that God is concerned about his honor and reputation? We're told that throughout all of the scriptures. In fact, you and I were created to uphold that honor to uphold his reputation, the Bible says that you are the light of the world. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're the light of the world. What does that mean? That we are to reflect the glory of God. You know what that means? Let me take one more step down. It means that the way we live, the decisions that we make, what we choose and what we don't choose, what we love and what we hate, is to mimic precisely the heart and the nature of God so that a lost and dying world, when they see the choices we make and the way in which we live, they know just how spectacular, wonderful, and holy our God is. Did you get that? You guys got that? Yeah, thank you very much. That means, yes, that's, that's how we're supposed to be living. And, and, and so the, the, the problem for, for so many is that we're far more concerned about our comfort than we are about his honor. Let me give you another example of how this looks in the Bible. In the book of Malachi, great book. I preached it one time. I mentioned that to somebody else. And it's always encouraging when people have been here for a long time. And I go, remember when I was preaching through the book of Malachi? And they're like, no. And that's always encouraging. But, you know, it always lets me go back, all right? Why do I even preach new books, right? Just keep preaching the same old ones. But here, here we go. Uh, in, in Malachi, uh, what happens is God begins to rebuke the priests. Here's what they're doing. They are offering up blind and lame sheep to God as an offering that the people are bringing him to sacrifice. So imagine that. Here they come. Remember what God said. They're supposed to be the cream of the crop you're supposed to be bringing. They're supposed to be these lambs of, with no blemish whatsoever. Why? Because it's a demonstration of what we think about God. So these people are not bringing the cream of the crop. You know what they're doing with them? They're keeping them. They're selling them. They're keeping them for themselves. Then they're giving their leftover garbage to God. If you've ever had a yard sale uh, for God at a church, this is kind of how this looks. People are like, how can I get rid of this garbage? I know. Give it to the church. 
right? right? And they're like, hey, we weren't using this, and I could see why. Um, and, you know, I thought maybe that you wanted. Just get it out of our house, all right? And we're like, oh, great. Get, this is wonderful. Thank you for giving your best unto God. And so here's what they do. They're taking these literally lame, three-legged lambs, right, and, and blind sheep, and they're like, here, this is for God. And then, the, then, then, then they begin to offer them up to God. God does not take this well at all. Because what it's doing is it's demonstrating what they think of God's name. It's an expression of what they think and who they think God is. Remember, they were a light to the whole community around us. There was actually a whole uh, area for unbelievers to come and to be able to watch these sacrifices ultimately being done in the temple. Why? Because they were supposed to learn about this God through the way and through what these people were doing and the decisions that they were making. Were they honoring or dishonoring? This was a dishonoring to God. And here's what God says. Listen, listen how he responds. Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors. You know that a church has gone wrong when God says you'd be better off. You'd, you'd show me more honor and more glory if you just stop doing what you're doing than for you to continue. And he says, if someone would just shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I, have, I will not accept an offering from your hand. Then he gives the reason why. He says, for the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great amongst the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You see what he's, he's getting at? His name and his reputation mean something. And that you and I are supposed to reflect and to glorify and demonstrate just how honorable and just how wonderful and just how glorifying he is through what? Through what we do and the decisions that we make every day. We either demean his honor or we demonstrate his honor and his ultimate glory. You say, but Mike, we, we, we're not giving up. We're not offering up lambs. Jesus was the ultimate lamb. We know that. Well, how, do we, how does this demonstrate to us? You're right. You're not giving a sacrifice in that sense. You are the sacrifice. Romans 12.1 tells us, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. You and I are no longer our own. You and I are not, in, are not able to make our own decisions for ourselves anymore to gratify the flesh. You and I were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and now we are servants of God, that we make our decisions on what would most honor God and not what will make us most comfortable. God's honor and reputation is at stake every day. However, many believers, including myself, are more concerned about their own comfort than they are with God's reputation. As a pastor, I live with this tension every day. There are things that I can preach that would make you love me much more. It would cause me much less heartache. One of the most difficult issues for me, and I never thought that it would be, is the area of marriage. Marriage, right? 
It has caused me so much pain and so much stress. And here's how it kind of works. A young man and woman, they want to get married and, and, and they come and, and, and their parents are in the church and they're like, like, oh, we can't wait. They just got engaged. We're excited about them getting married. And they come and I go, okay, well, let me sit down and have a discussion with them. And you sit down and you begin to talk with them. And clearly, as the nose on my face, which is really clear, all right, is this, is that one of these two are not born again. And the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And so the moment that that comes to a realization, all of a sudden I begin to feel sick to my stomach. I sit there and I go, I can't, I can't marry him. I can't marry him. Now, what do you think that's going to do to my popularity? What do you think that does at that particular moment? Do you think all of a sudden thumbs up? Hey, but five points up for him. No, what begins to happen is not only do they begin to judge and say he's got no heart, he doesn't care for us, he doesn't love. And on top of that, here's what I also hear from the parents. It's your job to marry them. Now do your job. Sit in the Jaguars, man. All right? Because they don't do their job. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, I just So do your job. But I'm in this place. I'm in this place. Do you, do you, do you feel the tension? The tension is, do what's more comfortable and just marry them and have the family over for cookies and crumpets, if we're in England, I guess. I don't know why that came out, but to have fun or to have everybody turn in most likely for that couple and even their family to be able to leave. What's at stake? My comfort or God's honor? Why would God's honor be at stake in who we were wedding together? Because... The marriage represents the unbreakable covenant between God and his people. God says that he will not commune, that he will not have an intimate relationship with anybody who does not believe in him, who has not placed their faith in him, who is not a child of God. And so our people, what we do in the, in the decisions that we make, exemplify and demonstrate and, and live as an example to what God believes. Does God believe in taking unto himself unbelieving people into an intimate relationship with himself? No. So you have to sit there. What is it going to be? It's going to be comfort? Or is it going to be God's glory, God's honor, and God's reputation? This is what I want you to see in this. Every one of you, every day, is making these decisions. Every day you're making a decision, and your life is on display. And God's honor is at stake, and God's reputation is at stake. But the reason, and, and, and i got to say this, I'm a little bit, I'm trying to make sure that I'm not in the flesh, so hear me out, okay? All right, so this has been building for a while in me. For it to be hard on you to obey and make your life more difficult or more inconvenient to obey God does not matter. Why are you angry? I'm really not. I just don't know how to say that any more clear. Because what you need to understand and what you young people need to understand is almost every major decision in life, you will either face the honor of God or the, or the comfort of your own. And people of the flesh choose comfort over honor and the glory of God. Number two, we're concerned for God's honor. 
Number two, we're convinced of God's power. You know that I'm not angry, right? I just want to be clear. That's that. We, we okay with that? See how worried I am? Make me comfortable, all right? So number two, convinced of God's power. Now here, let me, let me say this. If you're going to choose this path to be a servant of God, it's going to be hard. Can I hear an amen? All right. Two people are doing it. Good. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Here's why. Because you're, you're going to have to, first of all, fight the flesh. That means every day your flesh is going to want to go one way, and the Bible is going to be directing you another way. And who you truly are inside, and the spirit that resides within you, you want to go that way, and your flesh wants to go this way. Yes? Clear example of that? You want to go that way. But you know what makes it even more difficult? Not the fact that you're just going against the grain of your flesh, but that you're going against, really, the tide and the direction of the entire world, of all humanity. In other words, it's not just you within yourself, your own personal struggle against the flesh that makes his honor difficult to make just choices for his honor. It's the people around us that make it so stinking hard. All right? Now, we're going to see this in the text. Let me, let me show you that this is certainly true for him. Even one of his own family members made it hard. Look at verse 28. He says, now Eliab, remember Eliab? Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? Sounds like a big brother to a little brother, doesn't it? He goes, why have you come down here? Why are you down here in the first place, man? He goes, look, all you are is a shepherd. You're not even a soldier. He goes, and not even a good shepherd at all. You have a few sheep that you're even looking after. Sounds like an older brother, doesn't it? And so now notice what he says to him. He says, I know your presumption in the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, listen to the exasperation. He says, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He's in essence saying, I can't even speak now. I can't even say anything now. That I can't even say something that's right. I'm not even allowed to talk. Now, what is he ultimately doing? He's there, and now he's wanting to do the right thing in God. And what's the first thing that happens? He's confronted somebody that is going to confront his motivation. The first thing that's going to be attacked when you want to live for the honor and the glory of God is your motivation. Remember as a little kid, it starts as a little kid. You decide that you're going to go against your friends, and you're not going to steal the candy bar. Hey, let's steal it. No, I don't want to steal it. What are you, goody two-shoes? What are you, scared? Well, oh, I guess you're better than us. And it starts so little. But did you know that even in adulthood, that really never goes around? And then when you're in the business place, and you're a businessman, and you're trying to connect with these other business people, and you're trying to do business, all of a sudden you find yourself in these compromising positions of how you need to entertain them and what you need to ultimately do with them. And then you're sitting there, and you're like, and then you say, well, I can't really do that. Here I am, my comfort, because I can't do it for the glory of God, or do it, and I'll be more comfortable with my boss. And you got a choice to make. And if you make the wrong choice, people are going to wonder, what's your motivation behind this? You're going to be questioned. If you determine in yourself that you're going to do what is right, people are going to question. And people are going to say, are you doing this because you're unloving, uncaring? Do you think you're better than us? Do you think you're more holy than us? Are you, are you judging us, thinking our life is wrong? This is one of the, this is one of the major, major hurdles you will have when you choose God's honor. Now, let's see a second thing here. Not only is, is really his character and his motivation being attacked, but his abilities are attacked. In verse 31, it says, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he, and he sent for him. And so Saul finally hears, like after 40 days, that there's somebody finally willing to be able to fight this big old dude, right? 
And he's got to be excited. He's got to be encouraged. Finally, there's a man to do it. And he shows up, and it's not a man. It's a boy. He shows up, and David said to Saul, he says, let no man's heart fall. Let no man's uh, heart fall because of me. Right? I mean, he's just this little boy. And he says, your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Saul doesn't know whether to be encouraged or completely devastated. Probably a little bit of both. And listen to what he says. He says, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. When you choose to live for God and to be a servant of God, everybody around you is going to tell you why you can't do what it is that you're setting out to do for God. They're going to give you every reason why it's impossible for you to stand for God and to do the ultimate right thing. Or they're going to give you every reason why you shouldn't do what it is that God is calling you to do. Here's the third thing. You understand what happens at this point. He finally, he finally convinces Saul. Remember the story? Finally convinces Saul. Okay, you're, you're all we got. We'll send you out there. And, and what does he do? He says, first put on my armor. And it's like, boom. It's like, you know, the kid in the dad's shirt. You know, it's just like all baggly all over the place. And Bagley, I think I made that up. So uh, anyway, so he puts it on. He goes, this is not going to work. So what does he use? He uses what he's used to. He takes, he takes his staff and he takes five smooth stones and he, and he takes the sling. You guys know this story, right? And so he takes all of that. And then eventually he goes out on the battlefield this way. And when he goes out, then there's this third hurdle, large hurdle. His name's Goliath. And so up to this point, what, what, what's, what, what's he been confronted with? His motivations have been questioned. His abilities have been questioned. And now his mental stability is being questioned. When he comes out, what does Goliath say to him? What, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks and stones, right? Now, I had a young man tell me this morning that one person's explanation is that he's got a tumor on his brain and it's causing him not to be able to see clearly and everything, that one author states all this. How in the world do you know if this guy has a tumor, right? Let me tell you what I think it means. I think it means that he saw this guy and he thought to himself, Bro, you, you've lost your marbles. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Here I am with all of this, and you're bringing sticks and stones. You're out of your mind. You better believe that one of the biggest barriers for you to be able to follow and to live for the honor and the glory of God is that everyone around you will think you're nuts. Your family will think you're nuts. Your friends will think you're nuts. And if you really live for it, the people sitting on your right and left will think you're nuts. Are are y'all hearing what we're saying? And this is exactly what he finds himself in. All of these things are ultimately happening to him. It's been said that he didn't face three giants that day, or one giant, he he faced three. The character attacked by Eliab, his abilities were attacked by Saul, and his mental capacity was attacked by Goliath. And every person that chooses the honor of God over their own comfort is going to face the same exact challenges. Now, what happens here? Does he deny it? Well, it almost sounds in some ways that he does. He goes to Saul and he says in verse 34, he says, but David said to Saul, he says, your servant used to keep sheep for the father. And when there came a lion or a bear and he took the lamb from the flock, he goes, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I love this story, by the way. I don't think I ever got this story really right until now. Because what he said is he goes, man, you know, one would take a lamb in its mouth. Dude, and I'd go and I'd bop it right in its face, man. And he would drop it. And if it bowed up after me, then I'd grab it by his beard and I'd kill it, right? 
I mean, that's, that's pretty manly. All right, forget the punching it in the face and dropping it. That's your time to go, mm, sorry, I'm sorry, right? He goes, no, I grab it by the beard and I kill it. So this dude is more man than he is boy, right? But what is he do? What is he doing here? Is he trying to convince Saul? Is he trying to let him know that he has all the experience and the abilities to be able to pull off this job? It almost sounds like that, but that's not what's happening. Until we come to verse 37. Note what he's doing. Verse 37. He says, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Where is he saying his power comes from? God. Where is his confidence? God. I just have to believe this. From what we know about David and what we'll learn about David, that he would have agreed with all these people that opposed him. He would have agreed. He would have agreed on some level that when his brother said, hey man, your heart is perverted, he would have said, you're right. So I said, seek and see if there be any wicked way in me. And later on, he calls out, he goes, God, create in me a clean heart, oh God. He's probably very well, as all godly men and women are, that there is wrong motivation within their heart. He probably would have agreed, again, with Saul, right? Hey, you're right, man. I just don't have the experience to be able to really do what it is to be able to pull this thing off. He probably would have even agreed with Goliath when he sat there and said, you're a little bit crazy to be out here with sticks and stones. There's a part of him going... Yeah, this is a little crazy. This is absolutely a little bit crazy. But what he's confident in is not his own abilities, not his mental capacity, not even his own motivation. What he's confident in is the power of God. The power of God. He knows that the moment that he sets his heart to do the will of God for the glory of God, that God is going to give him everything he needs to fulfill that. Why? Because God is concerned for his honor and his reputation. There's a lot of people that go around all the time. Listen to this. There are a lot of people sometimes that will come out and they'll say, man, I want to do the will of God. But again, they say time and time again, I just can't do it. It's just too hard. It's just too hard. Do you think that your God came and saved you, then commanded you to live a life that you are completely and fully incapable and, 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 and doesn't, don't have the power to be able to live. Now, this becomes dicey. I'm not talking about perfection in this particular life. But what I am telling you to do is all of those hard things on a daily basis that God is calling us to do for his honor rather than our comfort, that the indwelling power of, all, of, of the Holy Spirit is sufficient enough to give us the ability to do what is right and leave the results up to God. Yeah? Here's what we need this morning. There are some that are about to make a decision right now, either by yourself or with somebody else. You, you know, you're about to make a decision, and you just keep going back to, it's too hard to do that. I know what God wants me to. It's too hard. It's too hard. It's too hard. I just... I'm so much more comfortable if I make this other decision. You need to abandon that. You are no longer your own. You are now God's. We are servants of God and not servants of the flesh. But you must be confident. You must be confident in the power of God that dwells in you, that you can do what it is that God has called you to do. And you know what it begins with, first of all? First of all, acknowledging what the will of God is. Secondly, acknowledging that you can't do it on your own. That, that is an actual good thing. Now, let me, we want to be careful with that. Did you know when I, when I was first pastor, I probably spent 
in the ministry. I probably spent the first 10 years, been over 20 years now. For the first 10 years, all I did was going around trying to appear like I had it all together. And you're like, well, don't look like you're doing that anymore. That's right. For 10 years, I tried to convince everybody. As a young man, as 22 years old, 23 years old, I tried to convince everybody that I had it all together, all figured out. And you know what's funny? I knew that I didn't know what I was doing, and everybody around me knew that they didn't know, that, that I didn't know what I was doing. You know what the most freeing time in ministry came? When I finally came there, and I began to realize that the acknowledgement of weakness was not wrong, it was right. To be able to finally sit there and to be able to go, bro, I can't do any of this. Man, I'm in over my head. There's no way I can accomplish these things that God has called me to. But here's where you have to be careful. But your inability and expression of inability is not to be an excuse for you not to do what is right. That happens more times than not. People love to sit around and go, oh, I'm so weak, and I'm so this, and I'm so that, and we're all sinners, you know, just fallen, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But they use it not to identify their need for God, but just as an excuse of why they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what I'm calling you to is we need to identify, can't do it, but I can do it with him. I can do it with the power of God who's within me. Why? Because his reputation is on the line. And God cares about that reputation. We need people today, whether you are making a decision or whether you've made a decision in the past, and it was based on flesh and not on the honor of God, to now change that decision and change your direction. You know what we call that? We call that repentance. To have faith in him. And here's why. Let me, let me, let me give you a summation of the story. Look at verse 45. We'll close with this. He says, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. That's why he's doing what he's doing, the honor of God. That's why he's going to obey. Is it going to be easy? No. But then he, why does he have confidence? This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the, the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines that day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The world needs to see this. You know what? We need to see this. We need people in here. Y'all look at me just for a second. We desperately need more examples. We have enough examples of when things are tough not to obey God. Enough examples. We need men, women, and children in this church who will say, this is the will of God. I know I can't do it. I know it will cause great discomfort, but I will follow him for his honor through his power. Why? When that happens, Others follow. You look at verse 52, and it says, and the men, this is after he kills them, he goes, slings, you know, stone in the forehead, chops his head off. After this, the Bible says, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. We need you. Your children need you to make these types of decisions, to live as a servant of God and not a servant of the flesh. Will you do it? Will you do it? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the